Hello, David Oakes here, and welcome to the first of three Treza crowds this week, all coming to you from the grounds of Castle Howard, albeit recorded last summer when I was working up in Yorkshire. Castle Howard is probably best known to most of you as a filming location. It was used in part for something on television called Victoria a few years back. Don't know if any of you watched that one. Uh, But perhaps it's most famous for taking the title role of Brideshead in Brideshead Revisited. Anyway, on Wednesday you'll hear me talk about hornbeams and squirrel contraception with Nick Cook, Castle Howard's head of forestry, and on Friday it's Roses, Rhubarb and Red Dead Redemption 2 with Alistair Gunn, the head of gardens and landscapes. But today, what better way to give you an overall look at the Castle Howard estate than a tour of the grounds with Mr. Howard himself. So, this is episode one of three in our Trees A Crowd Castle Howard trilogy, and this is Nick Howard. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. I'm Nick Howard. I was born and brought up at Castle Howard. And I've recently, in the last few years, come back to manage it with my so wife. Your brother was managing it before you? That's right, yeah. Saying? That's right, yeah. So how many years did you spend living here as a child then? Oh, well, I mean, I was, it was my home. It was my home, so I was... How was I that? Was, it that was, must be fantastic. Well, obviously... As someone who pretends to live in places like this for a living, it's quite nice to meet someone who actually does. <laughs> because when you're actually growing up, you don't know anything else. It's only as you get older that you start to get older that you start to realise just what an exceptional opportunity it is and what a privilege it is as well and there's obviously there's responsibilities that go with that privilege which is why I'm here. Are there particular things you remember about your childhood here? Um, a sense of freedom you know that on the morning in summer at this time of year I would just after breakfast I would go outside and I'd probably be out until lunchtime when a cowbell would be rung out the window and I'd come running back in again and it was just it's a big playground. It's a very big playground. Hey, I, I've come here as a visitor and I found it sort of stimulating from just a, a play perspective. It is, I mean, it's a lovely place to be. We're walking along now, we're walking along Temple Walk, which has got these lead statues, which are all 18th century reproductions. They've just been of, reinstated, haven't they? They've just, they were reinstated a few years ago. They were restored, but they were originally put up in the 18th century and they're all recognised, the source of them is all recognisable. And in fact, they would originally have been painted with white paint okay. um, to stimulate marble. But um, no one's done that for years, and the lead statue is now regarded as a, sort of, as a thing in itself. And it, In fact, it would look very strange mm-hmm. if we did paint them white. We did, um, I did a television show called The Pillars of the Earth, and oh, yes. again, all of the uh, masonry would have been painted and colourful and looked all quite glorious. And so there's a whole sequence where they were painted, but it looks so garish. Everyone's it does. Like, that looks ridiculous. Well, the Greeks apparently used to paint their stone statues, their marble statues, in sort of in bright colours. I mean, I was always led to believe. I don't know whether it's actually true. But, <laughs> um, it'd be regarded as complete vandalism now, I think, if you did it. So this is a it's it's a working estate. You have farms that yep. are working on site. You've got a, uh, you've got a timber industry, I guess. That's there's right. A, I think you're seeing Nick a bit later. I am indeed. You? I'm about to talk to him next. Good. And is there, is there one particular aspect of it that you are particularly pleased with, that you want to champion further? I think it's... I hope that in three years, three or four years' time, I would be able to answer that question by saying that we have actually visibly changed course in our relationship with the land. 
mm-hmm. um, because this place was always conceived as part of a landscape rather than just a house mm-hmm. sitting in a landscape. The landscape, the classical landscape, was absolutely a part of it. So these statues that we're walking past now, the Temple of the Four Winds that we can see ahead of us, which is which was Van Brugh's own creation, the mausoleum, which we'll see in a moment over on the hill, the great wall running down the edge of Ray Wood, all that is part of the original design to give a sense of the house not just being just a building, but of, of really of, of becoming this classical ideal in the middle of North Yorkshire. And what um, century was it built in? 18th century. It started in 1700, 1699, 1700. Um, took many years to build and was never completed to the totally to the original plan. But in some way that gives it its character. It has a kind of slight eccentricity about it, uh, a broken symmetry, which is always a rather intriguing thing. I think I read that there were three Howards who were the head of the household during its construction, so that no one... one uh... Well, it was conceived by the third Earl of Carlisle, who wanted to... really wanted to have somewhere that befitted his status in Yorkshire. Um, it, um, there was competitive building going on all around the country at that moment, um, which meant that there were the most wonderful craftsmen from Europe all over England just jobbing around, working in these places. So they were, they were all here, so you could do it. Have um, you found that that's a problem now? I mean, Finding we, the craftsmen? Yeah. Well, it's, we, have, we have a huge problem. Um, these, these buildings are 300 years old, I've just said. And 300-year-old buildings need a lot of care and attention. Um, and in particular, the mausoleum, which we're about to see as we walk down towards the temple now, mm-hmm. we'll see from this bluff. The mausoleum, which was designed by Hawksmoor, is in a perilous state because there was a technique used in the building, which seemed like a good idea at the time, but which over the course of the years has proved to be pretty destructive. Okay. Um, they put iron clamps between the stones in order to make them stronger, but iron expands up to seven times its own volume uh, when it rusts. So it's just pushing the thing so apart. So it's just pulling it apart from it internally. Um, and it's not a question of if we do anything, it's a question of doing it as soon as possible. Because if we don't, it's going to start falling down, then it would be very, very difficult. And I don't want to be the person on whose watch that happened. No. No. I mean, there, there are so many follies and architectural events. I was going for a walk down in the woods, sort of, uh, just past Wellburn the other day. And obviously it was not on public access, so I didn't go and have a look at it. But it, there was just things hidden in the woods. Yes, there's the four there. faces over there. There's the pyramid. Again, Hawksmoor and Van Brugh playing around. There are all sorts of things you keep, I keep discovering about this place. There's, uh, there's a pyramid over there, which it's quite odd. You can see it from inside the house, out the front, but it's clearly off-axis. Mm-hmm. And it, everyone's always been a bit puzzled by that. And what it is is a memorial to Lord William Howard, who was um, really the founder of this branch of the family. Now, his father was the Duke of Norfolk, and he married... The widow Dacre, who was probably the biggest landowner in the country. But not only that, he married his two sons to her three daughters. As so, you do. Um, really rather cemented the Howard's position <laughs> in power. And William Howard was the youngest of those. Um, and he got this estate and one over in Cumbria as well. There's other little bits of land. Uh-huh. Um, and so 
it was through him, it was because of him, that the third Earl of Carlisle eventually could build Castle Howard, because mm -hmm. he got the land from him, he got the wealth from him and so on. And although he created some of his own wealth. Um, so he asked Hawksmoor in the middle of building all this, he said, I think we probably ought to have a memorial to him. Just go away and do it. And Hawksmoor, loving his sort of arcane shapes, built a pyramid, pyramid. In, which, in which he put a huge portrait bust of uh, William Howard. It is the most amazing thing to see a pyramid as you drive and is, up. And it's kind of, it doesn't appear to have a logical position. It's off axis, it's, it's just there on the hill. But I was playing around with a, a compass and a map, as one does, uh -huh. the other day, and um, I put the point on the pyramid and drew the pencil through the mausoleum, which we can see over there, and turned it round, and the circle continued through the temple, through the front of the house, through the gatehouse, which is on the road, and the Karmar Gate. And what Hawksmoor had done without telling anybody was to put it bang in the middle point of a circle, which encompassed everything that had been built. Good man. So he was, he was the symbolism of that is fabulous. Here was, here was the memorial to the man who made this possible, and it was at the centre of everything. There's, um, there's an orienteering symbol which is uh, a dot with a circle around it, um, which means going home. Um, uh. And I'm pretty certain to say that I think um, Baden-Powell's grave has it on, uh. I think. And, I mean, I don't know whether Hawksmoor was thinking that, but to suggest that this is the epicentre of the symbol of going home is something quite beautiful. It is lovely, that. Yes, no, I must, I'm, I'll look into that further, actually, because, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? You know, that this, the circle is this sort of, uh, is the symbol of completeness. Mm -hmm. it's, got this, it's got this lovely, lovely, satisfying feel to it. And to suddenly realise that you're sitting literally on that, on that circumference mm -hmm. at the moment, as we are now, is, I, it bears me in a warm feeling. <laughs> Is there anything that you found that sort of, is, well, you probably can't tell me on the record, but is there any sort of secret Hawadian like sort of tunnels and <laughs> It's okay. something that everybody always, so we walk down by the lake. Yeah, lovely. It's something everybody always wants, and every so often something gets unearthed, which we think, oh, what's this? I mean, for instance, the other day up by the gardens, well, I say the other day, last year, um, a bit of ground suddenly fell in. We looked down, and there was a wonderful kind of, chamber underneath it, a beautifully built stone chamber. Uh -huh. um, but what this actually was, I think, was, um, was simply part of a drainage and water, water supply system, okay. um, which, had, which had just been disused. Well, I, I'm, there, I'm sure there's some drainage experts in the world who would have found that fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. One person's treasure is another per no, person's rubbish. No, but just rubbish. discovering something that was built that time ago and is still absolutely intact is always very satisfying anyway. Underneath the fountain, which is in the middle of the grounds in the south front, there is a, where the water comes in. There's this very complex kind of arrangement of pipes and taps and valves, but all in this beautiful stone chamber. And because there's been water flowing through it and just drips every so often, there are stalactites and stalagmites that have started to grow up and down from that. And it's, again, there's this fabulous feeling of kind of... A, Almost sort of primordial history, really, mm. even though it's only 300 years old, less, 250 years old, that one. But, I mean, uh, the estate's large enough that nature becomes an active participant in, in every aspect, whether it's through the minerals of stalactites. Like, there's... Absolutely. Even if it's only 300 years old, it feels like it's been here a significant... Well, of course, there is. There are parts of it which are, which are, which are really a genuine ancient woodland, and there's, and there's one particular bit of woodland which I won't give you the name of at the moment, because... I just love it so much. I love going up there myself. It's a great, there's that fabulous feeling of peacefulness that you get when you walk into ancient woodland, when you know that there are trees growing there, that there are maybe 
maybe this coppiced hazel or something, which was mm. which was coppiced for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I think I walked past. I think it was called the black oak. Yeah, and that, I think that had been there for I think it said six hundred seven years. Well, there's 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 a bunch of oaks. Um, up there, which um, which are known as the Armada Oak, simply because are oh, the ones in the car park. Yeah, they're simply because they weren't cut down at the time of the Armada. Okay. Um, when most of the oaks in this country were actually taken down um, and turned into ships. Turned into ships, indeed. But of course, I mean, one of the things that we realise about this kind of the necessity for oak is that if we want to keep our wonderful medieval buildings going, I think Notre Dame reminded us that we need to have a supply of that sort of wood. And in fact, there, there was a project that was started some years ago called the Cathedral Oaks, which was entirely about having the necessary wood to be able to restore our own cathedrals. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not quite sure how far that project got. Oh, that's but fascinating. It's, certainly, it's sort of one of those well-intentioned public ideas, which I think, if properly carried out, would be fabulous. That we, I think we forget that wood is an extraordinary building material Incredible. these days. Well, it's an incredible material generally, I and mean, I love it. I kind of, in a very small way, I like working it myself. This stick I made. Um, is that from up? What is it? And it's haze, just hazel. Now, in fact, not from up here. This is from um, down near Bath. This hazel, but it's it's terribly satisfying. I, actually, cutting the wood. I have um, an umbrella which I bought as a congratulation gift for me from a job, which is one huge piece of ash root that's been Ooh. shaped. It's it's glorious. Every time you hold it, you feel like you've got a bit of heritage and natural history. Well, ash, of course, it has, has a particular poignancy to it, doesn't yes. it? Because, I mean, like so many trees, I think, I think it looks to me, although I know there are various people making rather positive and hopeful noises, and optimistic noises, Fred, I'm rather pessimistic about it, and I think most of the ash is going to disappear. I mean, I, this year particularly, it's, I've noticed that there really is a very, very visible decline in most of the ash you see in the hedgerows by the road. It's very, it's uh, sad, but you know, there's so many of these trees that are being affected now. The oak, there's two different things that can, that can kill them. The, the um, chestnuts are, well, we can see their leaves turning early at the moment. It looks horrible. Can I grab a quick picture of you here with the house in the background? Sure, of course you can. Perfect. Oh, no, look, I just want to go and look at this. We have a lot of swans here, and they've all come in, you know, they're not, they're absolutely, they've arrived here and decided they wanted to stay, so we've actually got a colony on the North Lake. But they're very territorial swans uh, once they start breeding, and where we're standing now is on the sort of part of the whole watercourse that runs down the south side of the house, so you've got... It starts up at the reservoir and... starts up at the reservoir, goes into the fountain over there, comes down into this lake here, flows into the frog pond, down into Temple Hull, over, over the waterfall into the New River, and then past the New River Bridge to the last part of the New River. So that's an extensive amount of water. Uh -huh. And during the mating season, all this water is owned by one pair of swans. They won't let geese on, they won't let other swans on. Is that them down there? No, it's not. And that's what's rather curious at okay. the moment, because we've just had countryfile here. And Do you think they brought some was, swans with them? No, there was, <laughs> but there were a lot of stands and fishing and so on going on in this bit of water. And I thought we'd lost the cygnets, because they, they go on being vulnerable until quite a late age. Uh -huh. Until the other day, I went down right to the far end, actually I took my drone down, to the far end of, um, of the New River. 
and saw that the these two swans had taken their signets, their three signets, down as, as far away from this as they possibly could and were really protecting them in this sure. very, very covered bit. So, but what these two are is another pair of swans who thought, hello, this water's free. I'm going to come in. I'm going to start okay. trying to colonize it. And we've got this guy here who's also, I think, thinking, hmm, I think I can get a mate if I get this water. They're going to get a nasty the shock when, when Ferdinand and Melda come back up again. <laughs> they are going to have a really nasty shock. Oh, wonderful. Now, I've named all the breeding ones because it's kind of, because I'm, I'm fascinated by them when talking to people about them. It's easier to talk about Ferdinand and Imelda or the Jack and Vera. Or the, no, the white ones, the, the white swans. <laughs> exactly. the, white ones. the ones down there. Is there anything particular about the wildlife on site that you find stimulating? I mean, you're obviously fascinated by the swans. Oh, all the time. I mean, all, I'm always fascinated to see. I mean, I mean, I'm a terrible amateur at this, but... Oh, aren't we all? You know, I, it's it's... It's a real joy to watch, for instance, to watch the martins around the house mm -hmm. arrive each year and then start breeding and get busy with their nests and repairing nests from last year because they come back to the same nests. Repairing the nests from last year, having to build new ones because obviously there are going to be more. There are going to be ones who can't own their nests but who come back and then they breed and they're just as a second brood coming out at the moment. Have you um, noticed any decline? I know some people lately have found that the, the Martins. Martins no, it's it's been okay. Then the ones that worry me slightly are the Swifts, mm -hmm. um, which we did have quite a few of, but they you know they depart quite early, and I haven't, I only saw them for quite a short time. Swallows probably more this year than last year, sure. which is great. But uh, no, it's I mean I keep a very very close eye on it, obviously, because I've I've read the same reports and I've heard the same people yeah. talking and saying that. You know, they're seeing declines. The knock-on from insect shifting. Yes, that's right. But, I mean, there are quite a few insects here, particularly this year, actually. I've noticed far more around. And it's in the evenings, it's absolutely lovely seeing them. They come down here by the lake, actually, and they skim the lake. And even on the stillest evenings, you see from standing up at the house, all you can see are these little puddles appearing <laughs> as they just scrape the surface of the lake, going over it. When I first saw it, it I saw nice damselflies down there at the moment. Yes, lovely ones. The, the blue ones, I can't see them myself, but yeah. I just headed off there. Yeah. And you get some big feathers around as well. Some, it's, um, no, it's gorgeous walking down here. And they, when they were fishing during Country File, um, this lake hasn't been fished for years. It's just been allowed to go. And you don't really see much fish signs, but they caught two six and seven pound tench, oh, wow. which are big fish. How deep is the lake, do we know? It goes, it's probably in the centre. It's probably, I don't know, about seven or eight foot. Not very deep. It's just swimmable. Okay. Although I haven't done it for years. I was tempted this year at one moment. I but, feel like um, you, should. you should. Well, one of the problems with, with um, the things that, one of the things that I've seen change over the years is because of the runoff from farming of chemicals, the, um, the water gets too rich and you get two problems with that. You get massive uh, weed growth from the bottom mm -hmm. um, and you get huge algae blooms every time and every time the sun comes out. And, I mean, I, that's one of the visible effects, both of overuse of chemicals in farming and, obviously, of climate change as well. As a significant landowner, could you enforce uh, herbicide, pesticide, fungicide edict for your estate? I could do. I don't think that's the way to do it. I think the way to do it is just to lead by example and to run down the amount that we use ourselves and maybe offer incentives. But... Um, 
But I think it's much better that people do these things because they believe it's the right thing sure. to do than simply because they're following some instruction. Well, that's how we got where we are now. They had to farm in the way that, um, in the, way that the European Union said, um, which is not to say that I'm against the European Union, incidentally. Um, but um, it's the only way you could farm. If you're going to go to market and sell your goods, then you want to be able to sell them for the maximum price. Yeah. The trouble is, no politician is ever going to come along and tell the public that food should be more expensive. But I'm afraid it should be. And yes. meat particularly should be. Certainly. Well, there should be less meat produced and it should be more expensive. Eat better rather than... Eat better, yes. Um, and you know, it's the old cry of eat local as well. Um, food miles are important. So you've got Aberdeen Angus on the estate? We've got Aberdeen Angus. They're, uh, they're roaming out. I don't know, we can't see them at the moment, but they're out on the grass somewhere. Um, I was just trying to convince um, Alistair to allow more grazing animals to come and sort of maintain, get the fewer uh, uh, diesel-powered mowers on the property. Oh, my goodness, yes. I wish we could. Um, unfortunately, tethering is no longer legal, <laughs> and that used to be the great way. I mean, one of the things I'd like to be able to do is to make... that We have this wonderful straight road up at the top of the drive, which runs for five and a half miles or so, mm -hmm. absolutely straight line. And um, obviously the verges of that are sort of rather wonderful because, because they've, the, um, the lime trees and the avenues and the beech trees have been there for, since the house was built. Sure. So it is actually un... what's the expression? It's really un, unchanged grassland. It's, it's, um, it's, it's wonderful old grassland. And if we could properly deal with it, i.e. treat it like a flower meadow effectively, mm -hmm. I think there would be dormant plants underneath there which could make a marvellous display. But the trouble is that dealing with um, verges with trees on them all the way down a road is one of the most difficult and expensive and tricksy little games you can play. I mean, sure. it's possible, but you, know, you need tiny little balers. You need, you need to do, have men doing the raking sometimes. You simply can't get around them. Um, Surely you've got uh, your own personal raker on a state like this. <laughs> wish I wish I wish my great-grandmother built um, in the front of the on this side of the house that we're on now had Nesfield design a parterre which was made up of tiny little low hedges and very intricate patterns with colored gravels in between them but even she realized after a few years that having two gardeners permanently raking the just gravel, raking and gravel. Tree, just doing that was really was too extravagant and they <laughs> and took it out um, it's and the trouble is that that um, all these kind of older forms of farming or of, of agriculture of, of gardening that takes tremendous manpower. Yeah, you know, because that's how the only way you could do it in those days, and you know life was different. Um, and that manpower is both not available and too expensive sure. these days. So you have to find other ways of doing it. But I'd love to. You mentioned diesel vehicles running around. I mean, one of the things I'd like to, I wish would happen is that more of the, um, the manufacturers of these pieces of kit would move to electric. I mean, there is one of the big companies that has, uh, but the equipment is still too expensive. I and mean, I'd like an electric quad bike to get around here on. Okay. Uh, there is one company I think that's making them, so I'm looking into that. Good. Um, but it's, I mean, I simply can't face the idea of going off on one of those things that makes a terrible noise, is pouring out diesel fumes. Yes. When I'm talking about um, wilding up a bit of land. Why? <laughs> you know, we've seen how quickly people jump on apparent inconsistencies in attitude to this sort of thing a lot recently. 
And quite rightly so. I heard that you had sort of overseen an installing of a geothermal source. There was, there's a, there's a very, there's quite an early, um, yes, it's in the lake. It's got coils in the, in the bottom of the lake. It's, it's a heat exchange system. It, um, it's not as efficient as it might be because it's a kind of, it's, a, it's about two, two or three generations old. Um, and the entire sort of um, system was never really completed as it should have been. But we're back to looking at that now and other means of more, I suppose, conscious means, more woke means of sure. heating the house. Because the house does need a lot of heating, but it's consistency of, it's more about, it's, it's more about having a consistent temperature and a consistent humidity within the house than necessarily blasting the heating heat out. And making it, yeah. Um, and all these things, it's important, I think, sometimes, it's important with everything like that to go back to first principles and say what is the most appropriate method to be using. Yeah, it worked for so long, why do we think that we should change it in 30, yeah. 40 years? Yes. Um, one of the things that I loved about the interior of the house is there's so much William Morris everywhere and the whole arts and craft movement was something that, obviously, one of your... Yeah, that was my great-grandparents who were, were friends with them. He was a, he was a painter himself the night third of Carlisle. Um, and she was pretty radical. She's known as the Radical Countess. She was a suffragist. She was a militant teetotaler. Uh, she closed down all the pubs in the area. There is a story that she threw all the wine into the lake, which isn't true. There was some <laughs> bad wine which she threw into the lake, but that's necessarily expanded into something much, uh, much more exciting as a story. <laughs> so it's one of those stories you can never really kill. You, know, you think you yeah. think you put it to bed. And well, so no, you, you it wouldn't want to kill, again. though? No. It's nice having stories being told. No, but they were friends of the Pre-Raphaelites, and they had a they had a house down in London, which which was was I think almost entirely decorated by Burne Jones. We've got the Burne Jones windows in the chapel. We've got the Morris ceilings. There's that wonderful uh, triptych with the the panel. The, yeah, the that's screen. right. It's um, it's one of those things that uh, I mean, she went too far with it in that there was one of the most magnificent rooms in the house was the high saloon, which was south side of the house, first floor, wonderful painted painted walls, trompe l'oeil, a painted ceiling, I mean, really ornate, rich, proper Baroque stuff, English mm -hmm. Baroque. And um, Rosalind found this all a little bit too much, and she covered it all over with Morris wallpapers. Okay. I mean, she did put them on battens, she didn't actually stick, stick them, them to, on the, to the Pellegrini paintings, but... Um, Nevertheless, it was a fairly extreme thing to do. Now, unfortunately, that's been um, that was that was destroyed in the fire. That room, so okay. I can't show you just how ridiculous it was. But there are <laughs> there are plenty of traces of Morrison Co. still here, which is nice. It's part of the kind of whole business of the the history, the living history of the house. I mean, that, that, there was something I was I think I was reading that they, there were just so many extra rolls of wallpaper that are hidden away that sort of. Oh, I imagine the VNA would try to like get hold of these. Wow, well, they've got a lot themselves already. But there was um, there's one room left that has the wallpaper, all the wallpaper from that period, um, which is the museum room, and it's got this paper paper wallpaper that was made in imitation of Spanish leather wallpaper. Okay, it was put up in the 1870s, I think, or 1880s. Um, and I'd always assumed that the kind of marks on it were kind of from where paintings had hung and had just scrubbed it and partly gilded, partly not, worn off. When we got, there was a roll in the archive, when I got it out and unrolled it, 
it had that, it was pre-distressed. done there. It was pre-distressed. Oh, God. Which is fascinating. Well, I thought distressing, pre-distressing, it was an entirely modern thing. But, yeah, it um, sounds like um, an Ikea special rather than a... Yes, exactly. Like, than a Victor- well, to be honest, having lived in a pseudo version of the Victorians era for a, a little while now, you come to realise that there was nothing sort of gaudy they weren't prepared to embrace, at least for a decade. Oh, unbelievable. I mean, it's the whole sort of Pugin lot. <sighs> pretty extreme. But the What's chapel... What's place down yeah. in Ramsgate that is just incredible that he did with all yes, the... Yes, that's right. And it's, it's so garish, you've got to admire it, yeah. even though it makes your eyes hurt. You get to the chapel here, which is the last room you get to when you do the tour, and that was entirely made over by Morris and Co and, and their mates in the late 1870s, 1880s, and um, it, the richness of the detail in that is unbelievable. I mean, a lot of it is completely unnecessary, but it's such fun. And it looks entirely Catholic, and in fact, it's Protestant. Sure. <laughs> Where's what Protestants want to be again, isn't it? They, just, they, they don't tell anyone about it. <laughs> That's quite... <laughs> no, we go to the high church version of Protestantism because we just really love incense. That, yes, that's, bells, that's... And bells, <laughs> bells and smells, <laughs> yes. Okay, so um, a tree question. What's your favourite tree? There you go. Oh, God. Um, You've got yourself a bit of hazel in your hand uh, there. No, probably the oak. I mean, the, an old oak is an amazing thing, wherever it is and whatever state it's in. And I just... There's a, there was one of, those, one of the books on trees, one of the lovely books on trees that, that's been published over the past 10 or 15 years, worked with the theory that trees never died. That, okay. they all, that every tree was a phoenix tree and that, that very often, even if it looked as if it was kind of completely beyond its, gone on its last legs, it would be growing something inside it, whether from its own, actually from its own roots or something that had seeded within the bowl and had found a rich mulch of decaying bark, absolutely perfect for growth. And you do often see it. I love seeing um, you know, an old oak, a rotted oak, with, um, with maybe even just a maple or something growing out of it. Mm. It's a fantastic Any sight. kind of epiphyte is always quite beautiful. Yeah. There's something almost pagan as well about something rotting and disappearing into the earth. There's like birth trees where I think they used to, uh, certain pagan sects used to bury placentas beneath the tree and that yes. became your yeah. birth tree as you grew yeah. up. And yeah. I mean, I love this. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of work being done at the moment about what the rhizomes actually do, what, they, what all, the, all the communications underground. Um, and the fact that trees talk to each other and protect each other. Which is, this is the bit that I love, that if you get a tree that's sickening slightly, it'll be sent nutrition by all the trees around it underground. And there's, I, you know, people used to laugh at the idea of talking to trees, that um, there's a, there a certain prince who got laughed out of court about it. But the more I find out about trees, the more I feel that they can probably hear what we're saying. Yeah, certainly be affected by what we do. What's the difference, really, at the end yeah. of the day? yeah. I mean, it's an extension of um, the Jeremy Bentham quote. It's not whether animals um, can talk or reason, it's whether they can suffer. Yes. Would you like a cup of coffee? I'd love a coffee, yeah, that would be great. I had such a wonderful day walking around that lake. I didn't realise all of the swans had names, but my life is all the better for knowing that anyway i'll leave all of the thank yous until the final installment of this howardian triumvirate but if you'd like to know more about everything discussed in today's or the upcoming episodes head across to treesacrowd.fm and there are links to everything we shall see you again in two days time for the second installment but until then wash your hands keep safe and uh bye bye oh the oak and the ivy oh the oak and the ivy